for each thing I want to teach, is it basic theoretical knowledge, which I can teach however I want. I can teach with a lecture, a discussion, whatever. Is it a hands-on skill, which I can only teach through hands-on practice? Uh, or is it some kind of decision-making or wisdom, which I can only teach through like scenario challenges and discussion and figuring out what would you do if you were in this person's shoes? And there's more. There's a ton more teaching formats I talk about in the book. But if you think about these three, like try it now for skills, uh, scenario challenges for wisdom and decision-making, um, and lecture supplemented by a small group discussion for knowledge, um, and you kind of match up the teaching formats to your learning objectives, like boom, just like that, you've got a super good foundation for a workshop. You're listening to Tickets, a podcast series featuring the visionaries, producers and operators behind some of the world's most exciting and innovative live experiences. Joining the dots between disciplines, Ticket seeks to find out what goes into bringing amazing ideas, companies and concepts to life. In this, our second season, we're exploring the future of education and how emerging forms of technology and entertainment are changing the ways we learn and interact. My name's Howard Gray and I'm your host. In a world that's now full of influencers, thought leaders, and keynote speakers, how do you know who's worth paying your attention or your money to? What sets the best education experiences apart from the rest? And how do you know if your new business idea is worth pursuing? Today on Tickets, we delve into the answers to these questions and much more with Rob Fitzpatrick. Rob has been working in entrepreneurship and education for over 10 years as a founder, author, and educator. His first book, The Mum Test, has become a staple of the startup world. And next up is the Workshop Survival Guide debunking many of the myths about experiential learning and giving a helping hand to those wanting to deliver workshops that work. We talk about Silicon Valley Accelerator programs, the importance of design and education, and the hidden reasons behind getting hired. Enjoy. Rob, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. I know you're in you're in Barcelona right now, and I'm hoping it's a, a beautiful autumn day. It is unfortunately a, a rainy autumn day, and I'm figuring out which pieces of my flat leak, but it is <laughs> lovely in general, yes. Maybe let's kick off. Could you maybe just, just briefly introduce yourself, maybe what, what you're doing right now, and then perhaps a little bit about your, your history? Uh, my name is Rob Fitzpatrick. Uh, I've been doing tech startups and running different kinds of businesses for about 10 years. Uh, and the most recent of those businesses was actually just a lifestyle business. It was called Founder Centric, where we did education, designing and running education programs, uh, workshops, uh, building curriculum for universities. Um, I wrote a book, which is now used as a, a textbook called The Mom Test, about how to talk to customers. It's kind of a every startup runs into it. Uh, and it's something that I found just impossible to learn from books when I was trying to do it. So I, I tried to write like a more practical hands-on guidebook. Uh, and at the moment, um, I've been doing a lot of teaching the last few years. So I'm finishing up a book called The Workshop Survival Guide about designing and running educational workshops. Um, I know if we, go way, if we go way, way back to the start, um, as listeners may have deduced, you, you have an American accent, even though you're in Barcelona right now. Where, where did you start out? Uh, how did your career get going? Uh, I grew up near Miami and was very into video games as a kid. Uh, and, you know, parents always hate video games. But for me, that was the hook to get me interested in learning how to program. 
uh, which you know no one's going to argue with. I wanted to get into the game industry, uh, so I went to Georgia Tech. They had a pretty good programming and, and media program. And I learned very quickly that the video game industry is just a horrendous place to spend your life. And so I was like, well, what can I do? I don't want to get a real job. Um, I don't like corporate bureaucracy and that sort of stuff. Um, and so I figured the one thing I could do was to become an academic. Uh, so I enrolled in a PhD program. Uh, and one year into it, I learned about startups, which seemed like everything I wanted and nothing I didn't. So. I dropped out, took my uh, PhD research, which was around kind of educational and new types of playful, casual video games, and yeah, tried to pitch them to investors. We ended up getting funded by Y Combinator. So that was 2007, uh, went out to San Francisco and kind of never looked back. I've been doing, uh, doing startups ever since. What in those early days did you, did you kind of get wrong? What assumptions did you make when you were, when you were going into that kind of first uh round of funding from Y Combinator and going into an accelerator program? Well, the thing we did right is that we had an incredible team, um, not just good on paper, but like really like excellent product people who could really produce high quality stuff. Um, we had two artists and two programmers, like artist designers, and we were making stuff that just looked world-class, you know, um, really great. It was kind of like fun and funny. We were making these animations and little games and, and tools for kids to be more creative. Um, to make their own videos and that sort of thing. And we kind of got funded just on the strength of that. Uh, at the time, YC wasn't nearly the powerhouse name that it is now. So they kind of gave us the benefit of the doubt during the interview. And they said, listen, your idea is terrible and it'll never work and it'll never scale. But we're super impressed by the team and what you guys can build. So if you come up with an idea that doesn't suck before this meeting ends, this was our like funding meeting with them. It only lasts 10 minutes. Um, you know, if you can come up with an idea that doesn't suck, we'll fund it. I was like, man, we've only got seven minutes. And Paul Grant's <laughs> like, yeah, hurry. And I was like, will you help me? And he's like, okay. So we did a little idea jam. And at the end, they, they decided to invest in us um, for the idea that we came up with during the meeting. And uh, yeah, so that was what we did right was the team. What we did wrong was also kind of related to the team, which was that we were very strong product people. And that's where we were emotionally comfortable. And that's where all of our skills were. And you know, the way to monetize what we were doing, the business around it was to kind of white label it and license it and, and turn it into an advertising technology, you know, for this creative, playful, user generated advertising. And that's a whole different world. Uh, and I kind of drew the short straw and it was my job to do the sales and learn what the customers cared about and understand the industry. Um, and the emotional resistance meant that at first I would do anything except that job. You know, I wanted to be programming. I wanted to be building product. Um, and then once I realized it was like do or die and we'd raised another half a million dollars or something, so the stakes were a little bit higher, I was like, I really got to do this. So I bought a bunch of books on sales. I read everything I could. Uh, I watched all the videos on YouTube um, and I went out and tried it. And I spent like two years trying to just like talk to customers full time. And we did close a couple lucky sales. We got like Sony and MTV and a couple of others. Um, but ultimately, like I was unable to learn the skill that I was meant to learn. And it made us so much slower. It cost us like a year and a half or two years and just delays that I imposed by being bad at sales and being unable to learn it from a book. Uh, and so ultimately you move slow as a startup, you die. And, and that's what happened to us three or four years in. Right. So after that, was it a long kind of long, slow death or did you kind of know the death knell was, was sounding at a certain point? Yeah, we let it drag on longer than it should have. Uh, I think one of the challenges with being a young person doing a startup is like someone's given you a million dollars, let's say, and that's just an impossibly large amount of money for a young person who's never had a job. 
Uh, and so there's so much uh, emotional burden to, or, and like emotional trauma around the feelings of like admitting you've lost it and admitting you failed. And it's also the first big thing you've done on your own outside of the protection of the university system. So it's like your first big challenge in the world and you failed. Uh, that's a very like scary thing to admit because it feels like it's going to be your only opportunity, you know? And it's like, I failed at my only chance. And that's just not true, but it's something you can't realize until you've been through it a few times. Um, so emotionally it's very hard, which means you hold on for longer than you should. So like, yeah, we lost our savings. We took a lot of emotional damage. Um, and it took me a long time to dig myself out of the hole of burnout that came from that. Um, but when we did, when we could take no more and I finally told the investors, I'm like, you know, I'm sorry, we've tried everything. I present, I presented like a reverse pitch, uh, deck. The meeting lasted two or three hours and basically the, the deck was like 200 slides and it kind of uh, argued why every possibility left for our business was doomed. You know, so <laughs> and we went through it and they'd go, oh, what about this? And I was like, oh, yeah, that's on slide 150. And we'd go there and we talk through it. They'd be like, oh, yeah, you're right. That's not going to work. Because um, in the end, we did have a lot of customer evidence. It was just all bad. Uh, and, and we'd kind of like we kind of missed our window in the like social and user generated advertising space. Um, and then when they finally acknowledged it, they said, wow, yeah, you guys are, are, are screwed. And I was like, yeah, I'm sorry. And they go, oh, you know, don't worry. It, it happens. You guys kept going longer than any of us expected you to. Uh, let us know what you do next. Maybe we'll want to invest in it. And I was like, oh, man, I've been like tearing my hair out for months going crazy. And like for them, it's just business. You know, we did what we could and, and, and they understand. How did you move on from that? You know, after after you've taken that that hit of the business failing, and after maybe the slightly cathartic experience of putting together a two hundred slide deck of why it wasn't going to work, like what? <laughs> where did you move on to next? Well, I was broke and I was in London and I didn't want to get a job. So at first, I kind of bounced around. I spent like a few weeks uh, sleeping in the boardroom of one of my friends' offices that I had a key to. But then they came in on a Saturday for an all hands meeting and they found me in their boardroom in my underwear. So that was pretty <laughs> embarrassing. And after that, I was like, I really need to like get some income so I can afford a place to live. Uh, but I didn't want a job and I didn't have like the emotional wherewithal to start a serious company. Um, I didn't want the responsibility of hiring people and taking money and all of that. So uh, I basically was looking around. I had like three grand left from the uh, return deposit and last month's rent of my of the flat that I moved out of when my business failed. So I was like, okay, I got three grand. And basically I was like looking for, for a business I could create with three grand that would basically pay my next month's rent. Um, and so I used it to rent like a dilapidated, uh, totally non-sexy warehouse that was meant to be demolished in Shoreditch. But because of the economic crisis, uh, it meant all of the building plans had been delayed. So it was like half demolished, but still there. So I was able to rent it pretty cheap, got lots of space. Um, and by the end of the first month, I had enough tenants and just, you know, like a cheesy desk rental thing. Um, but that meant that I could afford a place to live and I had all of my time free, even if I had to be there physically. And I spent that year basically um, reflecting on my mistakes and blogging and, and sharing what had happened with other founders and trying to like understand why I had been unable to succeed. Uh, and ultimately, that was the foundation of learning that made all my other businesses possible. So why did you take that th that last three grand and, and plunge it into a dilapidated warehouse in Shoreditch? What, what made you do that rather than taking another option? I mean, there's like, there's precious few businesses that can generate profits in their first month. Uh, it's just hard. Like tech definitely doesn't. Um, you can do it freelancing if you've kind of already got a network, but I, I didn't have a network, so I couldn't activate freelancing that quickly. 
Um, you can't do any, like, it's just hard. There's like a shortage and like, sure, you could spend the three months on like, you can pay your rent for a month, but then where are you? You know? So I, I just figured like, it was the first thing I saw that seemed like it could credibly pay my bills quickly enough. I still had to hustle it and figure some stuff out, but you know, it was doable. It was at least within the realm of possibilities. So what year are we in now? So we're, we're, you're in London, you're East London. You've kind of been, you've slept in the boardroom and <laughs> decided that wasn't going to work long term. And have opened up this this kind of warehouse workspace. Where where what sort of in the timeline? Where are we now? It was like uh, probably 2010, 2011. Got it. And from from there, once you got that business kind of up and running, you said you spent a year on it. Where where did you find yourself going for, during that point of of blogging and kind of working with a few people in this space and figuring out what was next? Where did you end up? Well, it, it was less a business. It was technically a business, but it was never meant to grow or scale. All it was meant to do was pay my rent with as few hours of work as possible in the safest way possible. So it's like I, I had those ambitions and it succeeded at that. But I was also sort of a prisoner to it because I had to be physically on premises. I couldn't hi- afford to hire anyone. So it's like it freed my time, but it constrained my location. But that that's kind of what I wanted because I wanted my time. Um And yeah, I talked to loads of people. We set up a brain trust where um, I realized that you don't need to learn from experts. You can learn from people who are at the same level as you, as long as you structure it in the right way. So we would meet up once a week. We'd be like, um, this is what happened last week. Uh, These are my goals for this coming week. This is what I'm struggling with. And we'd have like three minutes to give our update and like seven minutes to give uh, actionable high value suggestions on other people's either priorities or give them resources. I found that was super valuable. Um, I read a lot. I talked to a lot of people. I learned so much from writing. That's when I started blogging. Uh, And I hadn't understood the value of blogging when I was still in my first business because it pays off too slowly. Uh, We didn't have the time horizons for it. But I basically said, well, I learned from writing and it makes me smarter and it helps me think. So I'm just going to blog something every day for like 100 days. Um, And by the end of the 100 days, I was like, that's amazing. I am so much smarter than I was 100 days ago. I'm so much more articulate because you've kind of... um, you've like buffered your brain with like all these like pre thought through scenarios that you go through when you're writing. Um, and you've seen the comments and you've seen what worked and what didn't. Um, I just found it so useful. Uh, and when I eventually started getting on stage and being a bit more of a teacher, it was that like pre thinking through writing. That's a habit I've always kept. Um, and for years after that, I did daily pages, just writing to myself, even when I wasn't blogging publicly. I I think both of those are really fascinating. Um, the, the brain trust you mentioned. So what did you, you mentioned briefly kind of what that looked like and that it wasn't necessarily experts. What, what did you find worked really well about doing that weekly? You briefly mentioned the process. Could you dive into that a little bit more? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll tell you how these things break. So they, they fail when you give everyone as much time as they need. Uh, and this sounds very confusing because you would think like, yeah, you've got important problems. Take all the time you need. Uh, but what happens is the meetings get longer and longer each week. Uh, until they become so long that they their their value per minute like plummets and then people stop showing up So we found that for it to remain high value You need to really limit the entire time to one hour maximum So that means like six people per table uh, or eight people and like eight or ten minutes per person So we did a three-minute update and seven-minute feedback and where we eventually got to is um, Seven minutes isn't enough time for everyone else to give their feedback So we would make sure there were index cards all over the table. And the idea was that if you had something for someone like a resource or a suggestion or if they should talk to you, um, you would kind of just write it on an index card and hand it to them. So that meant we could get through everyone's feedback without the uh, time bottleneck. Awesome. I love that. Um, And 
regarding the blogging, I just said, as you were talking, you said you blogged, was it every day for 100 days? Give or That's take? what I, I started with. And I ended up writing something like 250 articles in the first year. Um, and I had good secondary benefits as well. I ended up with something like, um, I don't know, like 5,000 newsletter subscribers and maybe between, I don't know, like 100,000 uniques on my blog per month. So I, I wasn't monetizing it in any way. And I eventually just let it wither and die. But I was like, oh, that's like about how long it takes to build that asset, which was a useful thing to know. Yeah, and I think with blogging, I think a lot of people uh, have a kind of fear of shipping, of putting out stuff regularly. I think the general held wisdom is it's good to write as regularly as you can because it kind of improves your, your thinking, your muscle, and you just get better at it over time and it starts to compound. But I think a lot of people maybe think, God, do I want to be just putting out something that's not ready yet? What's, what's your, your take on that when it comes to blogging regularly versus like spending a lot of time crafting posts and only putting out something every once every few months? Well, the nice thing about the internet is that screwing up is sort of by definition means nobody saw it. If a lot of people see it, you haven't screwed up, you've succeeded. So like you kind of can't fail visibly unless you're already famous on the internet. Uh, so that's, I found reassuring. I was like, oh, no one reads my bad posts and they only read my good posts. So that's like, you know, <laughs> pretty, pretty exciting. Um, and then you can kind of like pretty quickly, you learn that a certain like type of topic seems to be in your sweet spot or, or like a certain length is where you're most effective. Or like, for me, it's these like wacky metaphors or like story. Anyway, like you figure it out and that's how you get better. Uh, and when I wrote a book, people liked my first book a lot and I was, not that surprised because I mean, I was very pleased, but I wasn't that surprised because I'd already gone through several years of honing my writing in public, like every day through the blogging. So like it felt very comfortable when I sat down to to write a whole book and ship that, uh, which is like a much, you know, should be much more emotionally demanding. So that that writing process that you started in that kind of 2010, 2011 period, did, did you think that was going to take you towards a book or was it more just a way of clarifying your thinking? No, I was just trying to learn. And at the time, Lean Startup was brand new. So it was a very exciting time because people were like, whoa, this is a crazy idea. You know, what does it mean? How do we apply it? And they were trying to apply all these different concepts and explore them. Um, it was just cool. Like there weren't that many people really working on it. It was a small community. We were really creating new knowledge and like sharing it. And, and um, I don't know, it was just such a like, I don't know. It was this tiny internet version of like a Renaissance period, you know, where it's like people are figuring out this new knowledge and it's very exciting and fresh. And um, like all these guys who are now kind of household names, we were just like swapping notes like um, Joel from Buffer and a bunch of others. We're like, ah, this is cool. And we're like all internet buddies and, and reading every article that everyone wrote and like really developing the knowledge together. So that point from kind of looking at Lean Startup, writing your own blogs and coming out of this kind of lifestyle business that was just paying the rent. How did you segue into the next chapter from that point? Well, for me, the most interesting discovery about entrepreneurship is that um, not all companies accomplish the same goals. And it's really important that you pick an idea which matches your personal goals uh, and also your constraints. Like if you want to make something that's going to take 10 years to get started, then it helps a lot if you're already rich. Uh, you know, and if you're not rich, like if you only have a month and you need to pay your rent right now, then obviously you choose a different type of business. Um, you know, tech startup versus co-working space is one example. Um, but the thing I learned was that, um, I am not super ambitious. Like 
my first company was a very ambitious company. And when I was in Silicon Valley, that obviously gets multiplied. And then this exciting moment in London where like startups are becoming a thing, like it multiplies the ambition again. But once I had time to think, I was like, ah, I'm not actually happy uh, with that tempo and with that pace. Like, I don't like having a bunch of employees. I don't like having a bunch of investors. So I slowly came to this realization that I actually like smaller businesses that I can take slowly and that, you know, make profits. Um, and so that's kind of what I focused on. Um, I'm, I was still biased toward tech and it took me a long time to kind of kick that. I felt like if I wasn't programming, then I wasn't doing my job. Uh, but actually where I'm, where I'm strongest now, where I'm most valuable is like someone who can talk and who can also program. It's like the intersection of those skills. I so I made that's little a really, Yeah, that's a really interesting kind of observation. I think it sounds very simple that an idea that matches your personal goals. I feel like a lot of people kind of ignore that or screen it out because there are other factors that they may be prioritizing above that. Yeah, like building a billion dollar business is such a grand ambition. And it, it comes with so many costs to your lifestyle and your way of life. And the time, there's like a lot of trade-offs. Uh, and people don't consider those trade-offs because they think that's the only way to build a business. But it's not. You can choose like uh, when I talk now, it's like, um, like I have a dog, so I, who's a puppy, who's awesome. And so I need to be able to work from home so that I can hang out with my dog. And so, okay, so what does working from home mean? That means my business can't have an office. So it needs to be either all remote or I need to be able to run it without employees. And like, as you start to add these constraints, which come out of your like financial goals, your lifestyle goals, where and when you want to spend your time. All these questions, it like narrows you in on a, like a range of possible businesses, which are well suited to where you're at. Um, and I find people like young kids trying to start a super scalable um, tech startup. It's like, whoa, there's like a massive conflict there. Um, and I'm not saying don't do it or that you can't do it, but like be aware of uh, that you're making this choice and make it intentionally. Yeah. So let, let's dig into that a bit more around um, specifically around kind of young people starting businesses. I know you've done a bunch of different things in that space, whether it's around writing or accelerator programs and, and kind of other education work. What what did you notice in the early days of starting to do that kind of work, working with younger people? Oh, so, yeah, so I was frustrated when I went through university that no one told me that starting a startup or even freelancing, to be honest, no one told me that was an option. You go to these career fairs and there's like Amazon and Google and Microsoft and everyone trying to convince you to come work for them. But like there's obviously no one there from the company that you could start. Um, and most of the career counseling people, they don't really understand like the entrepreneurial and freelancing journeys, So they're not really able to recommend it. Um, and parents are so scared of it, so they don't recommend it. But the parents being scared of it is the craziest thing to me because like if you try a business and you're relatively smart and you fail, you lose maybe like a few months of opportunity cost. Like you can prevent yourself from losing any money, but you learn so much. Whereas if you go to university and it's not quite for you or you want to drop out or whatever, you've taken on, you know, twenty, fifty, a hundred thousand dollars worth of personal debt that you like can't get rid of and you can't declare bankruptcy on. Uh, and parents are totally happy saddling their kids with these six-figure personal debts, um, but they're scared of the kid like spending a few months to try their hand building something for themselves. That just seems totally insane. Um, and once I had discovered startups and this path, and I was um, I was so excited. I loved it so much. I was like, wow, like I, I, I wish like someone had told me that I could do this. I would have been more prepared. I would have made fewer mistakes. So. Wherever I can, I've been trying to get involved with like 16 to 20 year olds or plug into like high schools or universities, um, basically just tell people, hey, this is an option. 
Um, and the question of how you should start when you're that young is a really uh, interesting one. And uh, what Paul Graham says is that like, uh, startups are anchored in having a meaningful insight. You have to have like an insight about your customers or an industry or like a product or the future. And you can't have that sort of insight without having experiences like life experiences, time working, time seeing what's frustrating. Um, like every kid straight out of university has basically the same set of startup ideas. You know, it's group on for nightlife or whatever, um, because they have no life experience. So they can't come up with deep, interesting ideas. So Paul Graham's point was like, don't start a company when you're young, spend your, when you're young, like spend your time living, like do stuff, like follow your passions, like follow the, the job you want, like take note of what's frustrating. Um, and Again, it's a place where I don't, th I'm not saying you can't start a business when you're young. I started when I was 24 and, you know, although that one failed, like the journey ended up working out, which is very common. Um, but what I wish, like if I'm talking to a 16 year old, I would not say drop out of school and start a startup. But what I would say is start building the skills and the resources now that you might find yourself needing in the future. Like, how, how do you think they can best kind of go about starting to do that? You know, as you said, there's a lot of constraints when you're at that age. So where, where do you find the best places are to start building that or finding those kind of skills that they need? So the, the, at least for tech startups, the entrepreneurial skills is basically marketing, uh, talking to customers, uh, which is kind of the sales side of things like the in-person interaction. Uh, and then you've got programming and you've got design. Uh, so marketing, sales, programming, design. So, for marketing, for example, you've got kids who are 10, 11, 12 years old. My friend's kids are like this, who are playing Minecraft and they've started their Minecraft channel on YouTube and they've got, you know, 500 subscribers and they nurture them and they talk to them and they send updates. That's like such an in-demand skill for small businesses and startups right now is like content marketing through video, uh, community building, community management. So although it's for this silly, uh, Minecraft thing or whatever game they happen to be into, uh, that's the skill. Uh, and if you provide a little bit more structure and guidance around like the spark of interest and the thing they're already doing, um, I think that's how you get people really excited. Um, like when I learned to program in Georgia Tech, I did not learn from the lectures, right? I learned when I found a really interesting project and someone fun to work on it with. And we would spend, you know, 300 hours in the computer lab, you know, for a, a, a short project and just like, whoo, and that's where it sinks in. And that's why I was able to develop the skills that made YC want to fund me. And my team was from that same group. Um, it's like, you need to just put in the hours and to be willing to put in the hours, you need to find something that you love. And so with these entrepreneurial skills and kids, that's what I try to do. And that's what I would recommend parents and teachers do. Look at what the kids are already interested in. Try to see, okay, where does this touch to one-on-one -on -one conversation to building an online audience to programming anything or building hardware or like anything like that, um, or to redesigning stuff. Um, there's so many cool projects you can make and that's the way I think it should be taught. Um, it's not even taught. It's just letting kids play and, and nudging them a little bit. How is that kind of either the similarities or the differences between the kind of more established accelerator programs that you've been involved in building and running? It sounds like there's there's definitely some commonalities. I'd love to, I'd love to hear like how how far those commonalities and, and differences spread. So startup accelerators are interesting. Um, basically, what happened is 
after the so there's like a wave of progress starting in san francisco and then emanating out around the world so basically the best practices are created in san francisco uh, and then everywhere else catches up so when i got started with my business founder centric um what we were basically doing is bringing the american best practices to london once they were in all of the london accelerators we didn't have a place there anymore because they already knew the best practices they had the educational curriculum um there were now alumni and entrepreneur who had kind of gone through this already once and we found ourselves basically getting pushed east through europe um like central europe then all the way over to russia and moscow and those places um and then we after that we started getting pushed into like um india the middle east africa those sorts of places and it was this like just wave of bringing the best practices um obviously like africa is more interesting because and india and all these places because you can't they can't do what works in san francisco so you need to go and do much more like research and figure out what what does entrepreneurship even look like here uh, and while i love the impact of that the lifestyle of it did not attract me um and so one of my business partners at Founder Centric named Salim Farani, he actually left to basically pursue that question full time. And he started a new business called Source Institute, where they focus on kind of developing world entrepreneurial education. They're doing super cool stuff. Um, sorry, I'm getting a bit off track here. Um, but okay, so the way most accelerator education programs work, there's two different com components. So there's workshop education, and there's boardroom or mentor education. Uh, and the idea is like workshop education can bring a group of people up to a standard baseline of knowledge. Uh, and so with startups, that's like, you need to understand the basics of like how to talk to customers, how to like design an MVP, blah, blah, blah. It's like simple stuff that at this point, most people know. Um, but it's for accelerators, it's really important that everyone has that. So basically their, their workshop curriculum is designed to catch anyone who doesn't have or has any holes in this basic knowledge, bring them up to standard. Then after that, and as the businesses start to mature, um, they start to encounter more and more specific and unique problems. Uh, and also they diverge from each other. Some go faster, some go slower, some enter different industries. They, they, it becomes very difficult to educate mid-stage companies in a workshop context. So that's where it becomes more about the mentorship and then later to their board of directors. Um, so I, yeah, I, I don't know, like, I think one of the mistakes is trying to teach like advanced level knowledge through or this very specific knowledge through workshops when ultimately you need a one-on-one -on -one or even many-on-one -on -one, uh, knowledge sharing to deal with those types of issues. So it feels like a good time to start talking about workshops because uh, your, your current book that you're working on, uh, you mentioned briefly at the beginning, Workshop Survival Guide. Um, could you Tell us a little bit about that, where the idea came from, and maybe some of the learnings you've had from from being a teacher and designing education programs and leading sessions all over the world. Yeah, the workshops are so interesting to me uh, because they're so... Okay, people, human beings, spend so much time sitting in classrooms listening to someone talk, like so much time, right, uh, in universities and schools all over the place. Um, and... It's like it's such a fine dividing line between a lecture and a workshop, you know, like what's the difference? Because sometimes I teach a workshop in a university hall in a one hour time period. And it's like, well, like by any external measure, that was a lecture. But like for the students and for me and for everyone, it was a workshop. Um, 
And I think the difference is that uh, in a workshop, you're taking full responsibility for the energy levels and like the attentive state, like how the audience feels in addition to just what you're telling them. Um, like there's this old, uh, I don't know, people go, oh, well, I, I, I told the students the material and they didn't learn it. That's their fault. The teacher kind of abdicates responsibility to the students and then blames them when they fail to learn. And they'll say something like, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. Um, and I think that's such a, a depressing worldview for a teacher to hold because, yeah, maybe you can't force the horse to drink, but you can definitely make the water look more appealing, um, you know, and you can help it understand that the water's there and like help educate. Anyway, there's like so much you can do around the context and in a, in a classroom or a workshop setting. For me, that means managing the energy levels. So it's a very simple tip that you could apply to any lecture. Every university professor could be doing this. Um, every 20 minutes, like switch your style of teaching. So if you were teaching with a lecture after 20 minutes, switch to a small group discussion and then switch back to lecture and then switch to pair exercises where they're working through a scenario. Boom. That's your one hour lecture. But by just like breaking it up and switching teaching formats, uh, it, it, it lifts people's energy levels each time the teaching format changes like that, which means their energy stays fresh. It's not arduous for them to pay attention and listen to you. Uh, they're having more fun. They're more energetic. Boom. Suddenly your education is more effective um, because it's easier for them to listen to you. Uh, so I, I don't know. I think any educator who cares about what they're trying to teach should also care about how their audience is feeling. So what other advice do you have for, for maybe educators or maybe practitioners who are looking to get into education? If we look at Udemy and Coursera and all these platforms that are available for pretty much anybody to, to share expertise, um, where, do you, where do you kind of notice people going wrong and, and what advice would you have for someone <laughs> who's looking to kind of get into this, this area? So my, my ultimate single tip is do not start by making the slides. Everybody does this and it is dead wrong. If you open your slide editor first thing, you've already completely screwed up your workshop. Um, it's gonna be rambling, it's gonna run over time, run over time, it's gonna have bad energy levels, it's gonna be confusing. Um, what you wanna do is you wanna start by thinking, okay, what's my audience profile and what are the learning outcomes? So like who's in the room, what are they hoping to get and what am I gonna teach them? A small number of learning outcomes that are really important and high value for people to walk away with. And you just make it as a bullet point list. You know, I want people to learn this thing. And to make that point, I need these three supporting arguments. Um, and if you do that, two or three, a small number of learning outcomes for, say, a 90-minute workshop, um, this is like the creative task. The design of the workshop is the design of the learning outcomes. Um, and once you've got them, you can look at them and you can go, okay, well, is that right? Let me go talk to like uh, someone from my audience and figure out if this is what they, they would like to learn. And you kind of refine them and you iterate them. And it feels crazy to iterate on a bullet point list, but like this is the skeleton, the heart and soul of what you're teaching. Uh, and once you're confident with the learning outcomes, then you look at each and you go, okay, for each thing I wanna teach, is it basic theoretical knowledge, which I can teach however I want. I can teach with a lecture, a discussion, whatever. Is it a hands-on skill, which I can only teach through hands-on practice? Uh, or is it some kind of decision-making or wisdom, which I can only teach through like scenario challenges and discussion and figuring out what would you do if you were in this person's shoes? Um, and there's more, there's a ton more teaching formats I talk about in the book. But if you think about these three, like, uh, Try it now for skills, uh, scenario challenges for wisdom and decision-making, 
um, and lecture supplemented by a small group discussion for knowledge. Um, and you kind of match up the teaching formats to your learning objectives, like boom, just like that, you've got a super good foundation for a workshop. Um, and then you just jiggle the order you're going to deliver things in uh, to make sure that your teaching formats are alternating every 20 minutes. Um, and just like that, that's like the 80-20 uh, the rule for getting an amazing workshop that's going to keep people feeling good and that they're going to have fun and leave really good reviews for. Um, and the focus on learning outcomes is also how you translate expertise into workshops. Um, you know, like just being an expert is insufficient. You also do need to do this intermediary step. So why do you think so many people kind of miss these core principles when they're, when they're looking to unpack their expertise into something more interactive? I think we just don't recognize that, that, that teaching is a skill, or if we think it's a skill, we, we think of it as a performance skill as almost like an improvator, um, improv, yeah, whatever, as an improvisation. Uh, and it's actually like designed, like workshops are designed in advance. If a workshop is well designed, your performance kind of doesn't matter. You can go up there and be dry and be quote boring and all this stuff. If the workshop is well designed enough with this kind of skeleton that I talked about, it will hold people's attention and it will keep their energy fresh. So I, I think like either the teaching skill isn't recognized or like it, it's misunderstood as performance as opposed to what you do in advance. Like the slides are seen as busy work, but to me, like, well, the slides are busy work, but like the bit before the slides, deciding what you want to say, like that's this like so important, but kind of invisible step. So do you think that the skill that maybe a, a practitioner who wants to do teaching needs to learn is more around the design than the performance? Because I think most people think, oh, it's all about public speaking or uh, crowd control or running a room or being able to lecture or being an expert. Do you, do you think it's therefore more around that? that design skill than anything else? If you have the design right, the facilitation is really easy. If the design is bad, you need to be an incredible facilitator to like hold together this like ship that's falling apart. Um, so one of the ways I look at it is like, if I was forced to do fancy facilitation, it means that my design wasn't good enough. And so whenever I like, man, that facilitation was tough. I'm like, okay, like that's obviously revealing a problem. And I can kind of do a root cause analysis on like, where is my education design failing? Um, because the best workshops, like I was once hired to teach a workshop in Ireland. And at the time it was a pretty high day rate for me. And I was like, I took it seriously and it was important. And I just got wicked sick, like the day or two before I was meant to teach. And there was just no way I had no voice. I couldn't talk. And I also couldn't reschedule because, you know, they, they've invited their students and everyone. And so, but I had designed a really good workshop and I'd iterated it over a couple trial runs with test audiences. And I felt super good about the workshop design. Uh, and so I asked a buddy, I was like, Hey, like you understand this material. Will you like, will you go teach my workshop for me? And he said, I've never taught a workshop before. Like I've never facilitated it. He'd never even done public speaking. And I was like, don't worry. Uh, the workshop is well-designed. It will do all of that work for you. Just like trust the workshop, you know? Um, I gave him about five minutes of prep on, on how to set up a couple of the exercises. Um, and he came back with almost 100% positive feedback rating. And the client was like, when can we hire him again? When, when can he come back? He was amazing. Uh, and he told me, he was like, I was so nervous, but I did what you said. I trusted the workshop design and it was incredible. People were attentive. They were high energy. Everyone got to amazing results. And I was like, yeah, it's, it's a well-designed workshop. Uh, you know, like if you have to be a performer, you don't have a good workshop. 
So is that a role that you see becoming more important in the future, that, that ability to design workshops and learning experiences for, for companies and for schools and for, for people more generally? Man, I wish it would be more important. Um, it happens behind the scenes a little bit, but nowhere near as much as it should. Um, like I was uh, quiet because no one wants to admit that they can't design their workshops themselves, but actually it's an expertise and like it, sh it shouldn't be shameful. It's like, you know, there's the person in the room. Anyway, like I I've been hired to this company. They sold a 350,000 uh, quid or thousand pounds worth of workshops to a large bank. Um, so it was basically a, a 1000 pounds per seat workshop and they sold 350 seats. So they're like, great, we've done like nearly half a million dollars in workshop revenue. But the problem was they didn't have the workshop. Um, they basically like pitched this like hype pitch about like how amazing it was going to be and how it was going to change people's lives and all this stuff. But they didn't actually have the content, like the eight hours worth of actual content. Um, and so they hired me and I kind of designed it behind the scenes and like tested it and iterated each of the pieces and designed like um, – the games and the exercises and the speaker notes and like all, all this stuff. Um, and it ended up being really successful and they did their, you know, 350 grand of, of revenue off of it. Um, and I, I've been hired by universities also to design new um, curriculum. Uh, and yeah, it's cool. I don't know. You design it, maybe you run it or co-teach it once with the professor, you iterate the design and then you do a full handoff. Um, and I, I think it can lead to much higher quality education because it does take time and it does take testing um, to make really standout education. So I guess if, if we look on, you know, you take a look at LinkedIn or something similar, pretty much any day of the week, there'll be a, a flurry of influencers, keynote speakers, thought leaders and other kind of buzzwords flowing through your timeline. Um, how how do you figure out who's actually worth listening to or or if you're maybe in the in the position of being in a business and, and bringing in educators, how do you figure out who's worth hiring? <laughs> well, two different questions to that. One's about like, who do you learn from and the other, or who do you read? And the other's about who do you hire, which I'll, I'll answer separately. Um, as for the reading, like I used to read so much about, um, you know, startups, entrepreneurship, all like the productivity is like, I read so much, um, and I really, really enjoyed it. Um, and then I, I, I hit this massive point of diminishing returns where this was maybe like three or four years ago where I was like, you know, like a lot of business books should be a blog post, but then they get padded out by 200 pages of crap. And it, it's like very low value. So you can go to the bookstore and kind of skim through them and, and go through like 10 business books in an hour, you know, pulling out the main ideas from each. It's very rare that you find a book where it's like every page is delivering high value. Um, and same deal with blog posts. And like, you get into, I call it the accidental charlatan trap, where you get someone who truly believes that they found the answer, but they have a small uh, sample size. So like they've had one startup, which they've worked on for five years and they were successful or failed or whatever. Now they have five years experience, but in one business. Uh, and so they're going to truly believe their, uh, their thoughts. And they can go on stage or they can write with 1000% sincerity. They're like, this is true and you should do this and it will make your life and your business better. And they can be dead wrong uh, because they just don't know. They don't have enough experience yet. Uh, and it's tricky and you don't want to stop people from doing that because sometimes there's an incredible jewel in it. But like uh, that plus the books thing, plus the diminishing returns, it made me incredibly skeptical of uh, everything that I read and listen to. And 
a guy named Dan Tanner in London, he gave me the the advice once because he'd been doing this for years. He said, only read something if you're doing it with a pen. Like every blog post you read, you need to have a pen and a paper in front of you. Um, and when you read it, take notes uh, and pull out like the main ideas and the main arguments. Because if you don't do that, all like the pseudo mumbo jumbo crap, it gets muddled together with the real message. Uh, whereas if you're taking notes, you'll be like, oh, that was a 2000 word blog post that could have been three words. Um, and when you're reading actively like that and learning actively, you could be much more rigorous and then you can separate the wheat from the chaff. And, and sometimes you find a gold bar in, in, in a garbage bin, which is really useful. And you can definitely learn from that if, if you do so intentionally. Yeah, I've uh, kind of similarly to that. I, I think I started, I used a highlighter on a book for the first time a couple of weeks ago, just going <laughs> through it and, and it, I, I did actually find it really, really helpful in a book that was had a few lovely bits of gold in it, but there was also a fair bit of garbage. I won't name the book. Yeah. I, did find, I did find the highlighting really, really useful. And I think it's with the, um, the kind of fire hose of content that's out there, it's, all, yeah, it's almost impossible for us to synthesize it just by reading, right? And, and what I realized when I was doing this and taking notes on everything I read, I was like, wow, I am learning nothing from most of what I read. Um, probably because, you know, I, 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 it was stuff being repeated or it was anyway. So I just stopped. So for like three years, I just didn't read a single article or a single book about business or entrepreneurship or anything. Um, and it turns out like when I re-engaged with the community, I was like, I didn't really miss anything. And I had three happy years where it's like I bought and fixed up an old sailboat. Uh, I spent two years like puttering around England and France on my boat. It's like I didn't really have Internet. It was like, great. I came back. Nothing had changed. You know, I'm not dumber because I missed out on two years worth of frantic reading of Hacker News. Um, so like now I've, I found a balance and it's like. Like I just realized the other day I'd gotten back into the habit of reading Hacker News for an hour before I sit down to work, but then I've got a dog, a puppy. So after an hour, she needs to go out for a walk. So I'm like, oh, well, I can't really do that anymore. So now I just sit down and go into my work. And it's like, oh, this is so much better. It's like I get the same amount done by lunch as I, I used to by, you know, 5 p.m. before because um, it's just I don't know. You need to constantly call out this low value stuff or at least replace it with high value entertainment. Like now I'll play a proper video game instead of reading Hacker News. Because they're like ticking the same box, but the video game does it a lot better. Uh, I want to before we talk about the uh, the hiring of people, I just want to segue into video games briefly. Uh, what, what would you describe as high value entertainment right now in video games? I'm not a big gamer, so I'm fascinated. Uh, for me, the two games that I, I've clocked more than three thousand hours on each of them is uh, Path of Exile, which is kind of like a Diablo style action RPG, which is just so amazing and so deep and so incredible. Uh, and the other one is Dota 2, uh, Defense of the Ancients. So one's like a quick action RPG, um, very like go fast oriented. Um, and Dota is like you play it in an hour. It's five on five. Uh, super challenging, super deep as well. Like I play a lot of chess also, and I love chess. And I got to say that like chess is just like not as deep as a game. Uh, as like modern, interesting, competitive video games. So I, I love that competitive element. Cool. I, I feel like I probably am tempted to get back into gaming again. Maybe it's too late because I might get <laughs> uh, called out by people half my age, but I'm kind of tempted. Going back to that original question out of that segue, um, with that huge amount of influencers, as they would like to self-call themselves, many of them, thought leaders, keynote speakers, workshop designers, educators, how do you or how would you advise someone to figure out who's worth hiring? What, do you, what would you look for? So it depends what your goals are. So I've been surprised how few of the people who hire me to teach actually care about the teaching. Um, often they'll care about like 
bringing in an American. I know that sounds insane, but in, in like a lot of Europe, it's like, oh, it's an American. He's from San Francisco. It, it's like, that is why they're hiring me. Um, and yeah, I can teach and I can talk about some stuff, but it's like, um, if you really push people, like I, I like to always ask clients, I'm like, Hey, this was expensive. Like, why did you bother hiring me? Like, why go through this effort? You could have just had people read my book or you could have just like, I've recorded this exact thing, like as a Udemy video course, I've recorded this exact thing. as like people have videoed my workshop. Like you don't need to pay me a silly day rate. They're like, Oh, well, you know, we wanted to like bring someone in who'd written a book. Cause it's kind of cool for people to see. So often what, what, what people are actually buying when they hire a workshop teacher isn't education. Um, they're actually buying like celebrity or credibility or whatever. Um, so if you actually care about the education, then the discussion you should have with the workshop facilitator is all around the learning outcomes. And you should basically go back and forth with them deciding on the learning outcomes in the same way that if you were hiring someone to design an app for you, you would go back and forth on the requirements of the app and the wireframes and the product specs. Um, and if you like really nail down those learning outcomes and like the uh, supporting arguments and like which exercises and what the takeaways from the exercises are, um, like a, they might find it annoying. Cause it's like, I'm not saying create a ton of busy work. Like you're, you're not meant to do that and you don't need fancy proposals and any of this, but we're talking about like a bullet point list that you can put in an email. Um, and if people can show you that it's like, oh yeah, they actually have something worth saying to my audience. Um, that that's the, the biggest thing I would look for. Uh, and then also a huge one's just word of mouth. Uh, the workshop community is extremely incestuous and I've been shocked where once I got good enough, every workshop I gave led to more workshops. Um, you know, it's like people who come to workshops also tend to organize workshops. So, um, you know, you can ask people in your industry, like who's the best person, you know, who's taught this. Um, that's one way to do it. So a few quick questions before we, we start to wrap up, I'd be really fascinated to know, you said you were pottering around, uh, England and France in your sailboat before you, uh, pulled ashore in Barcelona. What, what was something maybe you didn't realize a year ago that you do now? Um, well, so I, I went through, so after my co-working business, which was all about paying the rent while I dealt with burnout and spent a year learning, like after that, I tried to build my businesses to maximum maximize freedom. So the way I see it, it's like a business can be oriented towards scale, like hyper growth, go big, take over the world, save the world, whatever, or reliability. Um, I want to pay my bills, take care of my family, have a career path that's like, not likely to disappear or fail, but on my own terms, uh, or freedom where it's like, I want the, whatever financial freedom, time, freedom, uh, place freedom. Uh, and so after my first business was ambition, my second one was like reliability. I need to pay the, the rent ASAP. And then after that, I focused on freedom. Uh, and I, I basically tried to cull like every, uh, restriction, like anything that held me to a particular city or anything that meant I had to like check my email every day, like anything like that. I tried to design, um, income streams that like, you know, I, I could get away from it. And then I was like, great, now I can get on my boat. And the amusing thing I realized is that like, it's actually nice to have constraints. Like I, I did not, uh, I enjoyed the total freedom for a little bit, but at a certain point it's like, well, like I. I like having a city and I like having like a group of friends who live in that city. And I like, you know, I want to get a dog and that requires being like fairly stable. So in the last year, it's been a year of gradually adding constraints back on after working so hard to get rid of all of them. 
and, and I found that my happiness is actually increasing as I very selectively and carefully, like I bought an apartment after 10 years of saying like, oh, I'm never going to buy a, an apartment. That's like such a limiting factor on my freedom. And it's like, I got the dog and I did a bunch of other things and I'm like, oh yeah, this is cool. Um, it's cool to have roots, uh, not to like blindly accept personal debt and all these things, but, uh, it's like, yeah, choose your constraints carefully because they do carry a lot of, um, benefits as well. Um, and they can be worth the cost. So that was a big learning for me. Um, another one was I really came to terms with the idea that I am not super ambitious and that I'm probably not interested in starting another serious tech startup. Um, my life is great right now. Like I've got passive income from previous businesses and products I do. They basically cover all of my monthly expenses. I'm like, and I was sitting there and I was like, well, what would I do if I was retired? And it's like, well, I would write, I would think I would meet with friends. I'd hang out at places like I'd hang out on my boat. I'd, you know, I'd like, I was like, oh, I can do that now. Um, and so I'm like, okay, well then I need a little business around books. And sort of like doing that not as something I felt bad about. Oh, like I should be doing a tech startup, but I guess I'll, you know, it's like, oh no, really embracing it. It's like, actually, this is how I want to spend my time. Um, this is where my values are. This is the type of work I really enjoy, like teaching, writing, that sort of thing. How do I build a business around it to let me do as much of that as possible? Uh, last, last question before we wrap. Um, I'd love to know maybe a particular skill that you think is maybe underrated or, or underutilized that, that, people should maybe be thinking about? Uh, I think the most valuable and generally applicable skill is to communicate like written communication in a way which like understands where the reader is at. So for example, um, I just missed my US taxes by like two months because my accountants had sent me a totally good email containing all the information, but it was called something like form 114A, you know? And it's like, oh, for, that sounds super boring. And it's just like sat in my inbox for two months. And like when I finally opened it yesterday, it was like, Robert, you must have this completed by October 15th. <laughs> it's, it's November 20th now. Or you will incur massive penalties and all these bad. And I was like, man, like, like, okay, sure, fair. They gave me the information. That's on me. However, imagine how much easier my job would have been if the subject line of that email had been like, you need to do, you, you need to do this by October 15th, 20 minute task or whatever. And it's like, suddenly that's like writing with empathy for where the reader is at and how the, the recipient is going to be receiving this. Um, like as another example, one of my friends runs a chiropractor business and he's like big, like thing, his belief is like, I'm going to, I'm going to be an old school business, but invest heavily in modern digital marketing. So we hired these really good like marketing agencies and he pays them pretty well. Um, and every month they send him this like big, like detailed report. And every month um, he calls me up and he's like, Rob, please help me understand what this report means. And I would go through it and basically be like, oh, this means this. And basically just put it from like marketing lingo garbage into like something that he could actually understand as a non-technical small business owner. Um, and he paid me. He would pay me 500 pounds per hour to basically do this translation job. Um, and I eventually stopped taking his money because I was like, ah, it's like fun just to chat to him. And it's like he needed the cash for his business and his family. Uh, but I was like, wow, this is how much it was worth to him extra just to have it written in a way that like he could understand. Um, and in every industry I've seen, people are super good at the core skill and they're super bad at communicating it empathetically uh, for the, the mindset and the goals of the, the recipient. 
Um, it applies to spoken communication as well, but but written is where it, it's biggest opportunity. And I think if you can do that well, if you can just write well, plus whatever other skill you're already good at, you've immediately like 10x your your earning potential. I love that idea of translation. You know, we always think about foreign languages when we think about translation, but rather, yeah, translating digital marketing information into something that a, a chiropractor can easily understand. I love that. <laughs> Um, so where would people find you online and, and, what, and what's happening next if people wanted to find out more about your, your various projects? Where, where's the best place to go? So robfitz.com, R-O-B-F-I-T-Z.com. That has links to everything. Um, my blog, The Mom Test Book, which is my first book about uh, how to get unbiased customer feedback. And of course, the, the Workshop Survival Guide, which will be launching uh, right around Christmas. Um, but you can sort of sign up if you want to hear about that and, and get some early stuff and bonuses. And yeah, if you're interested in doing any kind of teaching, I think uh, the Workshop Survival Guide will be useful. Awesome. Uh, Rob, thanks so much for the time. It's been wonderful talking to you. And <laughs> get best of luck with the book launch. And I hope to see you in Barcelona very soon. Yeah, absolutely. I look forward to it. Thanks so much, Howard. We'll be back next time with another edition of Tickets. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review or a rating via your preferred podcast provider or just tell a friend. And if you have any questions on this episode or suggestions for new ones, please drop me a line. Just head over to howardgray.net, that's gray with an A, forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening.